The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. We're only going to look at six verses today, verses 15 to 20. A very important verses, a very important teaching by our Lord. And maybe its importance is even magnified by the fact that some of it is totally misunderstood and most of it is usually ignored by the church. But we're going to look and see what our Lord tells us. Last week, we looked at the parable of the lost sheep, where the faithful shepherd finds that one of his hundred sheep is missing, lost. So he leaves the other 99 with other shepherds, we presume, and goes to great lengths in order to find the lost one and return it to the fold. I'll read those last few verses uh, that we did last week. Jesus said, What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Note the last verse, number 14, where Jesus tells the crowd that it is not the Father's will that even one of these little ones should become lost and perish. We need to understand he isn't just referring to children, but to all people, especially those of us who are saved. So you need to be able to place yourself in what Jesus is saying there. Immediately, Jesus goes into his short but very important command regarding how a believer who sins, in other words, one who is lost, is not left to just drift alone, but is to be lovingly pursued by the church in order to restore him back into the church. And our Lord presents this process in five stages. Verse 15, he just finishes now the parable of the lost sheep. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Now, hears you doesn't just mean that your words got into his mind. But the implication is that he hears, he listens, and he changes his behavior. The first step 
is for the wronged person to go to the offender privately, one-on-one, -on -one, to tell him his fault, just between the two of them, alone, without any griping or gossiping to others, or even so-called seeking counsel, except from God. Then Jesus tells us, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. In other words, the problem is solved and no further steps are necessary. The one who sinned has repented and is brought back into fellowship. And nobody, nobody else knows. Nobody else knows except the two people and God. But I want you to hear this caution. The first step is not going to your pastor for his advice. Oh, pastor, so-and-so did this to me and I just don't know how to respond to it. And, you know, I've cut so many people off who have come to me because they usually don't tell the other person's name at the beginning. I cut them off and I say, I don't want to hear any more about it. I don't want to know who it is and I don't want you to talk about it to anybody else. Scripture says, you go, you alone, you go. You confront the one who has sinned against you lovingly and come to a reconciliation. And if that works, if he repents and comes back, you need to love him back in and never tell anybody else about the situation, ever. Because the first step isn't going to your pastor for his advice. That's so many people do that. It's also, it's not going to a close friend or as a so-called prayer request in your small group. That's, by the way, that's really false and phony. That's gossip and using prayer as an excuse for gossip. No, the very first step is to speak to nobody else but God in prayer and only to go to the one who sinned against you. That's it. If we do this obediently, correctly, according to Christ's command here, nobody else will ever know of it, nor should they. Again, just the two people and God, period. And this includes the two people keeping silent about it. They shouldn't grumble or gossip about it either. Unfortunately, gossip is probably the most common sin of the church. I'm going to say it again. 
Gossip is probably the most common sin of the church. Yes, gossip is sin. We need to know that and we need to understand that it's a sin against God and it's a sin against people. And yes, it is serious. It is very serious. Satan loves, <coughs> excuse me, he loves to use gossip to ruin friendships, to split fellowships, to destroy churches. Please be aware and don't allow him to use you in this way. Sometimes there's some, boy, there's something juicy that people are talking about. Your role is to say, hold on, quiet, you. Did he sit against you? Yeah. Have you talked to him? No, not yet. Everybody else, forget what has been talked about. You, go and talk to him. And you don't need to talk to anybody else about it. That's how we keep Satan from ruining fellowship, from ruining churches. Probably right now, every one of us can remember a church split or something very close to it that happened because of gossip. Because somebody was blabbing off their mouths when they shouldn't be. But you see, what Jesus is saying doesn't mean that we should confront a person for every wrong or sin they commit against us. Believe me, we all sin enough that we'd all be very busy. God's Word tells us that we should bear with one another and be long-suffering, very patient <clears throat> towards one another. You read that, you've got a list in your, on your cross-reference sheet. Galatians, Romans, Ephesians, and Colossians all talk about that. So we need to use discernment because there are some things that we can let go of, but there are others that need to be addressed. And I think it's very clear to us which ones should and shouldn't. And if you're not sure, go to the one that you believe sinned against you and talk to him. Say, you know, maybe I took that the wrong way, but that really hurt. What you said to me or about me really hurt. Is that is that really what you meant when you said that? Just you two, just the two of you together. And not you know, use others. Because we need really to use discernment. But if there is no reconciliation, and the one who sinned won't hear you, and won't confess and repent, step two, will be necessary. Verse 16, and you might remember from our reading this morning, Jesus said, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. 
The problem expands now a bit with step two. If the offending person won't listen and repent, then two or three other people must be taken along for this serious confrontation. They should be chosen carefully, not whether they agree with you or not. That's a temptation. Don't do it. But they must be mature and knowledgeable of God's word. They must be faithful. They must be upright and able to make tough decisions, regardless of what others may think or believe. They must be spiritually and morally strong, because at some point they may, to be faithful and honest, have to stand alone. It's amazing how vicious a church can be when you exercise discipline like this against a member of the church who everybody knows is, oh, they're, they're so sweet. They sing so nicely. They do this. Oh, Larry, you, you're just mean. No. I'm just doing what the Lord commands all of us to do. In addition, those two or three others must not engage in gossip or counsel or group prayer with anyone else about the issue, either before or after the confrontation. But of course, the small group should engage in prayer with each other for the Lord's wisdom and leading. Then if the offender listens and repents, there is no need to go on to further steps. And again, nobody but the small number of participants with God should ever know of the matter. It's not to be talked about. It's not to be brought up and used as an example in the teaching. Unless you can make it so generic that nobody knows who you're talking about. Now, at this point, before we look at step three, it's extremely important that we understand the purpose, the objective of this whole process. First, despite how some people may see it, while severe punishment may be necessary, that is not in any way the objective of this process that's given to us by the Lord. In fact, knowing Christ, his nature and his character, and his mission and his first coming, we should quickly understand that punishment is not his objective. Remember the parable of the lost sheep. Remember what Jesus said just moments before. Verse 11 of this chapter, he said, For the Son of Man has come to beat up and burn everybody who sins. Is that what that says? No. It says, For the Son of Man has come to save 
that which was lost. And thank God that's why he came, because you and I are beneficiaries of that purpose of Christ. No, punishment is not the objective, but restoration is. Restoration is the objective. Find the lost sheep and restore it to the fold. Restoration is Christ's objective, and it must be ours as well. Not to take revenge, not to shame people, simply to bring them to a place where they confess, repent, and they're restored to the body of Christ. The punishment that may be inflicted, the purpose of it is to bring the offender to his senses, to feel the pain of his own friends and perhaps family turning their backs on him and more. That's where we go to the third step. I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 17. Jesus said, And if he refuses to hear them, that's the two or three that you brought with you, tell it to the church. If the offender refuses to repent, even after being confronted by the two or three witnesses, step three becomes necessary. Tell it to the church. Christ commands, tell it to the church. No more private meetings. It all becomes public within the church. And by the way, Scripture is clear even in these very words, that the issue must come before the entire church body and not just to the board of elders, as so many churches have chosen to do. No, it's, leadership is not mentioned here. This is the obligation, the command of Christ to every Christian. It's not to go to the Board of Elders. So many churches have chosen to do that to their shame as they try to keep secret something that our Lord commands to be public. Many of them try to excuse themselves for doing that, say, well, it's, it's you know, we're telling it to the, to the church leadership uh, no, that's not the idea. If that's all it is, then this step doesn't really work. The idea is to have the offender stand before the church assembly, have the charges against him read, and then asking him if he will confess and repent of his sin. That's the objective. First Timothy, we read, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all. This is Paul giving instruction to Pastor Timothy. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all. 
Why? That the rest also may fear. Yeah. So making it in a private boardroom, that won't do it. That's not gonna that's not what Christ's objective is here. And he says, in the presence of all. This is a very serious and somber time. And it brings a, a second and third purpose into the process. First, it's a way to clean house, to remove any known unrighteousness from the fellowship of believers. Scripture is so clear of the dangers of trying to mix evil with righteousness. So if the offender refuses to repent, he must be removed from the church. That's the requirement. How many times? Well, we read it earlier. I'll read some other quotes. One from the New Testament, two from the Old. 1 Corinthians 5.13. Paul talks about people who are outside the church. He says, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. See, he was talking about a believer, or at least a so-called believer, who sinned. He's not talking about unbelievers who said, God will take care of them. But the church is to put away from yourselves the evil person. Deuteronomy 19. Then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. This is when somebody brings a charge and it's found to be false. You shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Chapter 21 of Deuteronomy. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And all Israel shall hear and fear. I'm not going to go on to the other 20 incidents when God says this through his prophets, through Moses. Uh -huh. The idea is put away the evil, get it out, clean house, don't tolerate it, not within the body of Christ. Second, and it's obviously close to the first, the punishment should serve as a deterrent, a warning to all others of what will happen if they turn aside to unrighteousness. And here is where it's shown to be very wrong to say, well, we'll just bring them before the, the board of elders. So the guilty party goes into the conference room where there's the board of elders, whether there's two or three or 20, and they all talk to him and they all rebuke him and he still doesn't repent. Well, then they all go out of the conference room 
Maybe they've told them don't come back to church, but nobody else in the church knows about it. They don't tell anybody else. That doesn't work as a deterrent. That doesn't work as a deterrent. I feel the same way about when we have capital punishment in this country. It should not be done behind closed doors and screens and prison walls. It should be public. Again, the objective isn't just to kill somebody. The objective is to serve as a deterrent for anybody else to do that. In fact, that is the reason that Rome put those crosses right by the roadside of a busy road so they could see, talk to, even touch people who had been convicted of a capital crime. So it's a warning to all others. And then again in Deuteronomy chapter 13, we read, So all Israel shall hear and fear, and not again do such wickedness as this among you. And again in 1 Timothy, we just read this, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all. Rebuke in the presence of all, that all may fear. And third, as we'll see in the next sentence, the unrepentant offender must be excommunicated. No, that's not a Catholic word. That's a biblical word. Excommunicated. Removed from the church and barred from re-entry unless and until they repent. Unless and until they repent. Again, the objective is restoration. But they need to hurt. They need to hurt. And Jesus says, but if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. In other words, with love and prayer, aiming at the goal of full repentance and reconciliation, you need to treat him as a heathen, as a tax collector, as an unbeliever. That's how he needs to be treated. This is very painful, both to the church and the offender. It brings difficult obligations onto every member of the fellowship. And I'm talking to you as well as to myself. They must cut off all contact with the person, including social media, emails, texts, phone calls, Morse code, making signs with flags or with hands, letters, or any other means of contact or communication. It's forbidden to the church. It's forbidden. The person has to hurt from being kicked out and isolated, often from close friends and family. 
But of course, constant, loving, persistent intercessory prayer must be carried on by the church for the offender to come to his senses, to confess and repent to God, and then to the church. And then they go through the process of restoration. The objective, again, is not to hurt the offender, although it will, but to cause serious pain by having friends, relatives, the entire fellowship removed from his life. Isolation, such that the, the offender finally chooses to admit his guilt, then confess and repent, and thereby be restored. Of course, this must begin by the offender contacting church leadership somehow, maybe sending a letter to the church, maybe violating his excommunication and walking into the church and saying, I confess I have sinned and I repent. He may just do that. But in some way, the offender finally chooses to admit his guilt. Then again, confess and repent and be restored. Now, church leadership, they may, in fact, I believe should, set some rules for restoration. They should assign some tasks and observe the person to ensure that repentance is real, that it's sincere, as well as requiring the person to participate in some small group or ministry where he can mature and grow in his faith and the leaders of that small group or ministry can observe him closely and he can be accountable to that person. There may be other things involved. Leadership may require the person to do a number of other things. One of them will be to not serve as they may have served before. Maybe they were an usher, maybe they were in the choir, maybe they, maybe they did small teachings. Maybe they taught in Sunday school. Maybe they led a home fellowship. No, they can't do anything leadership for a certain period of time. As the leadership of the church, as well as everybody in the church, is able to observe and see if the repentance is real. But we should never forget who it is who actually changes hearts. I love this verse in Romans 2, verse 4. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. Some of your Bibles say the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Paul is actually, that's actually a part of a question. He says, or do you not know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Again, when we're led to repentance, usually it's because something hurts. Something doesn't feel good inside. But that's God's goodness, bringing out of us an awareness of our sin. The word discipline 
I didn't plan to mention this, but the word discipline, if you look it up, it doesn't mean punishment. It can mean reward. Discipline is responding to somebody's action. If it's good action, it can be celebrated, rewarded. If it's bad action, it brings punishment. But discipline isn't always negative. We need to remember that. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. But in the meantime, the former offender is restored to fellowship and it is the obligation of the church to lovingly forgive and receive him back, not mentioning the offense, but opening their arms and their hearts, even rejoicing that the sinner has repented and come back, even as the shepherd rejoiced when he found the lost sheep. The next verse should be very familiar to you. We saw Jesus say it back in Matthew chapter 16. He says here in verse 18, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. As we discussed back then, Jesus means that any faithful body of believers acting according to the Bible has the authority to declare if someone is forgiven or not. The church's authority isn't to determine this by themselves, but to declare the judgment of God based on prayer and the principles of Scripture. If, if you happen to look at the bulletin I sent you in email yesterday, one of the pictures I put there is the one that I had here at the beginning and the end of two young men or two men praying together. The other one that I put in there were a couple of Bibles because we need to use Scripture at every single step of this process that Jesus is calling to. Prayer and the principles of Scripture. When faithful fellowships humbly determine such judgments in answer to their prayers, and according to God's Word, they can be certain that God is in agreement. Even if the person remains unrepentant and just goes to another church, then God is in agreement that he should be excommunicated. In other words, whatever they bind or loose on earth is also bound or loosed in heaven. When the church says an unrepentant person is bound in sin, we are saying what God says about that person according to his word. When the church acknowledges that a repentant person has been loosed from that sin, God also agrees. Verse 19, 
Jesus said, Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That's, that's not so much a promise of answered prayer as it is an understanding of the interaction of Christians with God in heaven. That if we, acting as God's people and in faithfulness and reference to God's, <coughs> excuse me, to God's word, if we come to a righteous decision, we need to understand that that is also honored in heaven. You know, we often forget that prayer is real and that there is great power in genuine prayer. If even, excuse me, if even we pray alone or if just two people pray together, in agreement, according to God's word, the Father hears that. The Greek word, I love this, the Greek word translated agree is the word symphonize. Symphonize. S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-I-Z-E. What word do we get from that? Symphony. We get symphony from that. So the Greek word in this context, it means that prayers in agreement with each other and with God will harmonize like an orchestra with numerous different instruments playing the same tune in the same key, making a beautiful sound as they join together in agreement, so to speak. That, that's the Greek word. Jesus says it in verse 19. I say to you that if two of you symphonize on earth concerning anything that they ask. I love that picture. I hope you remember it because it says so much. So, where there are even just two people praying to God in harmony, there's great power. In fact, we know, hopefully you know personally, we know that one person praying to God, there's great power in that as we are in agreement with his word and with his person and with the Holy Spirit of God who is within us. Having said that, we'll take a serious look at a mostly misunderstood and misused verse. Verse 20. Keep in mind where we've come from. Jesus is talking about church discipline. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, Jesus said, I am there in the midst of them. 
This verse is widely used as a general promise of Christ's special presence when we pray as a group. It is absolutely not that. I want to ask you, you and I, well, you, this is confession as well as I know you've done it too. You and I and many pastors and Bible study leaders use this verse in that incorrect way because they hadn't studied it seriously in its context, something that is immeasurably essential for accurate understanding of God's word. Sometimes they say, well, you know, when there's just two or three gathered in Jesus' name, you know, there's just this special presence. Hogwash. As we have read so far today, what is Jesus talking about? Is he focused on prayer? No, he's not. Is he debating with the Pharisees? No. Is he healing people and driving out demons? Again, no. So what then is Jesus' focus here? Sin? Yes, but much more than that. Jesus' focus here is directly and specifically on church discipline, on dealing with obedience and disobedience to the Word of God and the God of the Word, on being truly faithful or not. I want to ask you, how special is it? I'm serious. I'm asking this question. I want you to answer it, at least in your mind. You can say it aloud if you want. How special is it that you and I literally and actually have the eternal almighty God abiding within us in every single person who is a true follower of Jesus Christ. And he promises to be within us forever. We'll read a verse for that. It's true for every single person who's a true follower of Jesus Christ. Is that special to you? Or has it become, well, you know, ho-hum? The fact that God is always within you. Not just with you. He promises that. But he's always within you. Is that special? I certainly hope so. It is very special. It's incredibly special. It is eternally and wonderfully special even almost unbelievably special. Except we see that truth clearly in God's word. Indeed, as Christ's promise. In John 14, shortly before he was betrayed and crucified, on that very special night, in John 14, verses 16 and 17, we read our Lord say, And I will pray the Father... And he will give you another helper, paraclete, that he may abide with you forever. How long? Forever. 
the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus is talking a few weeks forward at Pentecost. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That's such a beautiful picture for the church. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. One of the many wonderful stories in Scripture. Almighty God, the Holy Spirit, is living inside each of us, never to leave. And I'm certain that you can't, cannot find anything more special than that. Okay, so why do I say all of this? I do so because people wanting to explain or justify their misuse of this scripture say foolish things like, oh, there's just a special presence of God when two or three are gathered in Jesus' name. Really? More special than what our Lord has already given to us? I think not. That's not what Jesus is saying here. It bothers me so much when I hear people who should know better using it in that wrong way. And I'm one. I have done that until I studied Scripture. Until I looked at that verse in its context, I was using it too. I mean, hey, if these guys are using it and they know what they're doing, they know the Bible, I should too. Wrong. I needed to look, you need to look at the Bible and see if what I'm telling you is true. Now, Jesus isn't talking about a general prayer meeting, but of a legal requirement, specifically the requirement that God states so clearly many times found in both Testaments. Again, in Deuteronomy, we read this earlier, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. In John chapter 8, Jesus speaking, he says, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. And then again in 1 Timothy, Paul giving instructions to this young pastor. He says, do not receive an accusation against an elder 
except from two or three witnesses. <clears throat> you see, Paul's ca calling on the same thing from the Old Testament. He's bringing it right into the New. So did Jesus. Two or three witnesses. One person making an accusation. Forget it. Ignore it. Because that's not proof. And you see, that is what verse 20 is about. It is a legal standard requiring more than just a single witness in order to convict a person. And when that is done, Jesus promises that he will be there in their midst, attesting to and agreeing with their decision, their legal decision. Now, I was, I was going to end here, but every time I, I've studied these verses, I love the fact that there's such a clear example right here in the pages of our Bible. If you would, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians also, but we'll start with 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Give you a second to get there. Okay. Paul, in this letter to the church at Corinth, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said this to that church. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed as absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus." We're going to go on, but that's how strong this offense is. Turned over to Satan. That's not to be eternally damned. That is what would happen to him when he's excommunicated, when he's kicked out of fellowship with all the people that he knows and loves. That makes him truly a victim of Satan. He's wide open to Satan's attacks. Verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
what he's saying is that you can't let any sin within your fellowship, any known sin, because as we've learned elsewhere in Scripture and as Jesus himself taught earlier about the leaven of the Pharisees, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you allow that sin, and you even brag about it as they were, oh, how open-minded that we are. We even allow homosexuals to be priestesses in our church. That's what the Episcopalians are doing all over the country. They're proud. They're glad. They celebrate their sin. And it's terrible. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle, there was obviously one that he wrote before 1 Corinthians that we don't know, we, don't, we haven't found. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. In other words, he's saying, I'm not talking about evangelizing non-believers. We've got to deal with them. We've got to present Christ to them. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone mm -hmm. named a brother. That's so important. Who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Don't share a meal with them. For what have I to do with judging those who are on the outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So he's commanding the church in Corinth to get this guy, to excommunicate this guy. And probably also his father's wife. But the second verse, the second section I want to read to you, and we will end with this. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6, 7, and 8. And this demonstrates so clearly the purpose of this discipline. Again, Paul writing about what he told them to do to this guy. He said, this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient 
for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. You see how that works? Discipline was exercised. But then in the interim, in the period between these two letters, Paul heard that they really, they really obeyed and that guy suffered. And now he writes back, he says, whoa, 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 enough, enough. You need to lovingly take him back in. Lest he be swallowed up with too much sorrow. I find that a beautiful example right here in the Word of God. So, just in these short pieces of Paul's letters, we see our Lord's required process for church discipline being lived out. Sadly, it is rare to see it applied properly today. In fact, one very large church in Southern California that did and does properly apply Jesus' command on church discipline, they did properly apply it all the way through step four. They found themselves in court years ago being sued by the offender for making his sin public. Go figure. But they haven't stopped being faithful. It's John MacArthur's church. And God bless him. He's been sued more recently for, for not closing for COVID. In fact, he's received $400,000 for his church from the city and $400,000 to his church for the state, from the state, specifically Governor Newsom. But thank God that he did obey the words of our Lord. And Heavenly Father, I thank you for this example in your word and the example that we, that we see in, unfortunately, few other churches. But Father, I thank you. I thank you for those who have chosen to be faithful and stand up and be obedient to you, which is much more important than being obedient to civil authority. I thank you, Father, for this command that Christ has given to his church. And I pray, Father, that the people of Jesus Worldwide Fellowship would take seriously what he has commanded we do. And I pray also, Lord, that those who are misguided in thinking that verse 20 is just calling for some something special that we already have, Father, I pray that you will bring them to their senses and that they, like I, will see the truth and will adjust, will change 
how they apply and understand your word. And Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.